And now from Esther, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with King Jeconiah of Judah, whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. The girl was fair and beautiful, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in the citadel of Susa in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. The girl pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetic treatments and her portion of food and with seven chosen maids from the king's palace and advanced her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not reveal her people or kindred, for Mordecai had charged her not to tell. Every day, Mordecai would walk around in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. And then in verse 17, it goes on. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. Of all the virgins, she won his favor and devotion, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet to all his officials and ministers, Esther's banquet. He also granted a holiday to the provinces and gave gifts with royal liberality. This is the word of God for the people of God. The book of Esther fills nine chapters and then goes on a few sentences longer in what's chapter 10. It tells one long story of Esther and Mordecai and how they fared as a minority people in a foreign land under a foreign ruler and king. It's a story full of intrigue and surprising twists and turns and danger and death present throughout. It serves as the origination story for the Jewish festival of Purim. It happens in the spring and they celebrate that God has delivered them from this massacre that we'll hear about later in the story today. They celebrate that once again God has acted in such a way to save them as a people. Well, the book of Esther begins in chapter 1 telling us that the fellow who was the king had a series of banquets and parties to celebrate how much power and wealth he had. And he invited all these men to the party. And it seems like just it went on for days and days, drinking and eating and celebrating. At one point, he decides he would like to have the queen come. He orders her to come. The book of Esther says he told her to come wearing the royal crown. Some commentators suggest that he was saying that she should come wearing only the royal crown. She refused to come at any rate. 
She says, no, she is not coming. The king is not pleased with this, and after talking with his advisors, he decides he's going to do a new thing. The king decides he can choose a new queen if he would like. So he puts out an order for the young women from across his kingdom, from every part of the realm, be brought to him to see who he might like to select to be the new queen. That's what we began to read today in the second chapter. This is what is happening. And that's where we learn that one of these young women that is going to be brought is Esther, an orphan adopted by her cousin Mordecai. We're not told why her parents died or how that happened, but only that both of her parents are deceased and her cousin is now taking care of her and has adopted her as his own. We're told in verse 7 that she is fair and beautiful and that once she gets to the courts of the king, she is looked upon um, very positively, that she is charming, that she quickly rises through the ranks and finally is introduced to the king. And in fact, he falls in love with her, we are told, from the very beginning and decides to make her the new queen. He does not know that she is Jewish. She is from this minority people. In the meantime, there's another story going on with this fellow named Haman. Haman is a court official, and he's rising through the ranks, and we find out that finally he's made second in command, only below the king. And people are bowing to him and showing great deference, and he really likes that. He seems to really like that everyone bows to him. But then it comes to his attention that there's this one man who does not bow when he comes by. It is Mordecai. It is too close to worship for Mordecai, and he worships the one true God. And so he's not going to bow when Haman walks by. Haman is infuriated. He decides to not only kill Mordecai, but to eliminate the Jews from the entire kingdom. He decides that he's going to destroy them all because of what this one fellow did. If he's a troublemaker, maybe they're all troublemakers. And he sends out an edict that on a certain day, they are all to be put to death. And Mordecai cannot believe it. He sends word to Esther and says, you have to do something. You have to perhaps speak with the king to see if you can stop this. Esther is not so sure that she wants to do that. For she knows the rules in this day of patriarchy and absolute authority of the king. If she goes to the king without being summoned, the sentence is death. She's not sure that she wants to risk that. She tells Mordecai she's not sure. He sends a message back to her and says, Make no mistake, on that dreaded day of death, you will not be spared. You too will be killed. Then he adds, Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. 
And Esther decides that it's a time to fast and pray as she tries to make her decision. She asked Mordecai to call all the people together to fast and pray. She said, if you all will do that with me for three days, then I will be ready. And if I perish, I will perish. Now, if this was a nighttime drama on television, that would be the end of the season. This would be the cliffhanger episode, right? We'd be left wondering what's going to happen. We might even be shown some little clips from the next episode of Esther working her way toward the king's court, just about ready to go in, and we would be left wondering, will she live or will she die? They do that, so we'll watch next season. I want us to pause here for a moment, but not so that you can watch next season, but so that we'll have time to think about what it means to be a person of faith and what happens to us as people of faith when we find ourselves in these situations in which a difficult decision has to be made? What happens to us when we are torn between the powers that be that ensure our own comfort and righting a wrong that is being done to another? It's a time of discernment, a time of decision-making that Esther finds herself in. She wants to be loyal to the king, for he has shown her great favor and had provided for her. And yet she also wants to be faithful to her people, who now are in grave danger. This date has been set when all of them are to be put to death. It reminded me of that story in the Christian scriptures where some people come and ask Jesus if it's lawful to pay taxes to caesar remember what he said he says give to caesar what is caesar's and give to god what is god's it sounds like great advice but still if we're the one deciding we have to decide what belongs to whom and which goes in which column of the ledger and how much are we going to give here and how much are we going to give there and where does our loyalty really lie it can still be a difficult decision. We can still find ourselves, even though we have great guidance and wisdom from the Bible, in situations where it's so difficult to decide, even though we're trying, it can be terribly vexing to know what to do next. So often in life, we face tough decisions where there are competing claims drawing us in different directions and we are not sure which way to go or what to do a number of you have told me that this time of year is difficult for you because you struggle with how much to give back to god how much is really god's and how much is mine and how much can i afford and is that even the right question and what am i going to do and what if i step out in faith and give more and then I can't pay these bills or take care of these situations during the year. It can be a difficult decision. Or there's that kind of situation where you're offered a new job. It's a raise, it's a promotion, but it's in another town. 
and you're excited about going, but at the same time, you realize you're about to disrupt your spouse's career, and your children are thriving, and what if they don't do so well once the move is made, and all of a sudden, what looked like a great opportunity becomes a difficult decision when everything is factored into the mix. Or maybe you've had that experience in your marriage where one or both of you have made some decisions that have led to a series of conflict and now there's anger and tension all the time and you can't decide whether it's healthiest to stay or to go. What is God leading me to do in this situation? Or perhaps you found yourself in that situation where you're child has made a mess of things and is in trouble and you're trying to decide whether it's a good idea to bail them out or to leave them there to face the consequences so many situations where we find ourselves torn in the messiness of life not knowing what to do or where to go or how to get through as a person of faith. I was invited a couple of weeks ago to pre-screen a movie that's opening this week across the country. It's called Hacksaw Ridge. It's about a battle that was called Hacksaw Ridge that happened during World War II in Okinawa between the Americans and the Japanese. And the movie tells the story of the battle. It is a terrible battle. If you do not like blood and gore, do not see this movie because it's very realistic. But it not only tells about the battle, it focuses on one person, a real person, who was a Seventh-day Adventist. And as World War II was starting and after Pearl Harbor, he wanted to serve his country. He wanted to do his part. And so he signed up for the Army. He goes to basic training when they get to the part where they're going to issue him a rifle, he says to his sergeant, I cannot touch a gun. And he says, what do you mean? And he said, in my faith, I am taught, do not murder. And so I want to serve, but I cannot touch a weapon. As you can imagine, that is hard for the others to understand. His decision is so different from everybody else's that they begin to ridicule him. Then a few of them beat him up. Then his superior officers try to pressure him to just quit. And then finally, he's court-martialed. And at the end of the court-martial, the judge says, Okay, you can go to war and you can go to battle. You have won the right to serve without a weapon. But the rest of his unit is still not convinced that this fellow is sane or trustworthy. They're not sure they can count on him during a time of battle until they actually get into the battle. They get to Hacksaw Ridge. They're down in a valley. There's a great cliff above them. They're to go up the face of the cliff onto the ridge where the Japanese are already burrowed in. They're fighting to take the high ground. Just before they go up, the unit in front of them comes down 
actually most of them don't come down. They've already been killed in the battle. They go up and there's lots of men and lots of weapons in a very small space. And both sides began to take a great number of casualties. Finally, the commanding officer for the Americans, as night begins to come, calls his troops to fall back, to retreat. They all begin to retreat. They get back to the cliff. They go down the rope ladders. All of them flee, except those who are too badly wounded and one medic without a weapon. His name is Desmond Doss. He is later decorated for his valor. But that night, just before he goes over the edge of the cliff, he feels God's prompting to stay on the battlefield and to go see if he can help anyone who is not dead and only wounded. And under the cover of darkness, even though there's still shooting going on, he begins to crawl back onto the battlefield, administer medical aid, and then pick up or drag whomever he finds back to the American side, put them in a rope harness, and lower them back down over the ridge to safety. As he's doing this work, he reports later that he continued to say this prayer, Please, Lord, let me get one more. Please, Lord, let me get one more. Later on, when they counted how many people said he saved them, he had saved 75 men that night single-handedly. He was a person who was caught in a dilemma between loyalty to his country and his Christian faith. And certainly he showed courage and valor in battle in serving his country. And at the same time was a great witness to his faith. He found a way to do both. But the road was not an easy one to travel. Esther, I think, finds herself in a similar situation. For she wants to be loyal to the king, and yet she wants to be faithful to her people who are in danger. Finally, she takes to heart what Mordecai has suggested, that perhaps she has been placed in this position for such a time as this. What about you and me? Have you ever found yourself? In a situation where you had opportunity to witness to your faith, but it was going to cost you some personal advantage? Now, most of us never have to stand up and risk our lives for our faith or our faith community. But most of us do have opportunities in work and in social situations to recognize sometimes things aren't right. And we have opportunity to stand up and say, that's not right, or we shouldn't be doing that, or that's not fair. And yet so many of us hesitate because we think it may cost us personally. Esther helps us here. 
Esther says, let us pray and fast for three days, and then I'll be ready. And if I perish, I perish. She found her way and resolved to be faithful to her people. You can read the rest of the story in the latter chapters of Esther. In fact, she does survive and is able to save her people, and they're able to celebrate that God has delivered them as a people once again. But it is not without death and carnage. There is a toll that is taken. But we could take Esther's lead, even though our situation is probably not as dramatic, and take her guidance to use the deep spiritual resources of our faith like prayer and fasting to allow God's power and spirit to flow into us and through us and to help us in our times of discernment and decision-making in difficult circumstances. What are you facing? What important decisions do you need to make? Perhaps you need a special time of prayer and maybe even fasting to help you determine where God would have you go. Maybe you need to listen to the counsel of others in your faith community as Esther listened to Mordecai to help you see the path that God may want you to take. In a few minutes, we're going to move right into the communion liturgy. There will be time for us to read and pray together. But then after that, everyone will have opportunity to come forward to the rail. And while others are coming and going, you have time to pray on your own to ask God for His blessing and leading and guidance. May we take Esther's lead and resolve to be a people of prayer so that we truly might be a community of faithfulness. In Christ's name, amen.